computer. Okay. Good afternoon or evening or whenever you're watching this. Welcome to the inaugural Hollywood Elsewhere Zoom podcast. Uh, called the, called the Misfits. Perhaps not called the Misfits. Perhaps called We're Here to Help. Okay. Um, with your host, <laughs> Mr. Peter Bongo, and myself, special guest, the erotic connoisseur as wingman and tech uh, right. adjunct. Joined this afternoon by the incredible author and commentator, HE's own Christy Coulter, and the television personality and podcaster, HE's own Bill McCuddy. And welcome. And welcome, everyone. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Have, good to nice. see you guys. I have a potential theme song. Oh, I was given some, by the way, some potential theme music, but I wasn't able to deliver it. Is, is it the oh, same? There you go. This is not it. Okay. It's not a funeral march, right? No, it's Edward Champion sent me a, a, some orchestral music, which I thought was kind of interesting. He didn't send it to you? Glenn? He didn't send it to me. All right, no problem. This is my theme, Dave Mason's We Just Disagree. Okay, all right. <laughs> anyway, so just starting off, because I, I, I've been kind of wondering about exit interview. What does exit interview actually mean? So I when know, you, I know what the topic of your book is, twelve yeah. of Amazon, but what does exit interview mean? I think the like last time Jeff, I think the last time Jeffrey ever got fired for a job from a job, exit interviews didn't exist. Yeah, I mean they they seem like. <laughs> I'm sorry, I I just don't know what. No, it no, means. no, it's fine. And I was just I was just telling um before we started recording, just so listeners know, there's a wasp kind of circling around my head. So if I occasionally look like that, it's that's why. Okay. Um, so an exit interview is when you leave a company, they often want to do, when you leave of your own accord, you're not fired. They often want to sit down with you just to be like, what did you like about working here? What did you not like? Are you leaving for another job? Just to kind of get your, your oh, okay. take as you leave. And when I left Amazon, I was in the 90, like eighth percentile for tenure of every employee on earth. Um, and I didn't wasn't offered an exit interview. Okay. <laughs> so I was like, well, you know, I think I need to have my say anyway. So that's the glib reason for why I wrote the book. Obviously, there are a lot of reasons I wrote the book, but wow. but I thought, well, this will have to be my exit interview. So they were not terribly supportive or uh, compassionate uh, as you were leaving, or they were hostile, or what? It's just a massive, massive company. I mean, you know, I worked with a lot of wonderful people who were terrific and, but it's such a massive organization that, um, you know, I was given this, this sort of form to fill out rather than a sit down interview. And then the, the tech, Amazon has really good external tech, but the internal tech is just notoriously terrible. And it ate my form <laughs> that I had spent uh like an hour and a half filling out. And I just thought, well, this is kind of perfect. But no, it wasn't. Um, it's just a huge system that doesn't see human beings anymore. So, but, you know, I was I was such a long timer and also one of very few women at my level. So I kind of thought, well, if you want, you should talk to me. Like I have things to say mm. and um, just didn't happen. So now it's happened. <laughs> and ironically, they sell the book on Amazon, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I, and I'm grateful. Did they do one of the blurbs or the forewords or anything like that? No, 
<laughs> they did not. I knew I wouldn't get any special attention from Amazon. I mean, all the editors at Amazon Books read it in advance and all wrote to me raving. The but they couldn't like, you know, I mean, I, I heard from all of them, but they couldn't say anything. Um, but yeah, I'm glad Amazon sold it because it's that's where a lot of people buy books. But I did tell my publisher early on, like, what if they refuse to sell it? And they said, oh, that would be the best publicity we could ever ask for. And I was like, okay, yeah, that's true. But still, I'd rather have them selling it. So Since I've never really, I haven't read the book, Christy, I'm sorry, but can you okay. presume that you address the genesis of Amazon getting into movies? Can you give a quick summary of that summary of that whole moment? You know, I actually, I should send you a copy of the book. I'd be happy to, but I am, um, I didn't actually, it's very much a literary. That's not in it? <laughs> <laughs> not really, because I didn't work in movies. So it's, it's very much just my experience at Amazon. But I think Amazon, what I can say is Amazon wanted to create like this ecosystem where you would have all your needs met through Amazon. Mm. You know, that was why they built the phone that nobody remembers now. And so you know, now they're getting into well, home medicine. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they they run like the a pharmacy now, which is actually my husband's been using it. It's great. It's like a really good pharmacy. Um, so it's they, too late to kiss up now, Christy. What's that? <laughs> it's too late, it's too late <laughs> to kiss up now. You sound like you're still in the four hundred one k. Oh, I, I, I actually, I don't wish because the 401k match was so terrible. Um, no, they wanted to basically have people in like a content stranglehold. So it kind of made sense to like make movies, make books. Um, they don't make their own music, but they sell music. The other thing is the way the movie thing started is it was this weird thing where customers would vote on what like pilots they thought should become series and it's one of those things Amazon did that was like a kind of cool idea that just just didn't fly. So I think that's where it started. It didn't start as like, let's just be a normal studio and make two mm -hmm. things, you know. So right. um yeah, it's kind of it's a strange place. And there's a there there is there are uh not a I wouldn't say a preponderance, but there are uh several personal accounts from ex-Amazon people. Mm -hmm. that have gone down through the years the uh, theater guy mike daisy who lives in my neighborhood in brooklyn had a yeah. one show called my dog years based mm -hmm. on Amazon. i know a guy named charles ardai who was uh i met him when he was a 14 year old video game reviewer and mm -hmm. i was editor at a magazine called electronic fun with computers and games i can't imagine why that never took off but i knew charlie from <laughs> being 14 years old and then he became a software guy and he uh, created um, some kind of software and made a good deal of money off of that. And um, he then uh, he now has like hedge fund concerns and he runs a publishing company called Hard Case Crime. He puts out those paperback and yeah. hardcover books with the lurid pulp type covers like yeah. Joyland. It. And it's kind of his hobby. And he was Jeff Bezos's best friend and Bezos oh. offered him a place on the ground floor of Amazon, which Charles turned down, much to his lack, complete lack of regret. He does not regret yeah. He feels oh, really? like the whole thing turned into yeah. a kind of a nightmare uh, and, and would have been just crushing for him. And he'd rather make the money that he makes and spend it on uh, running a, 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 a publishing company that puts out semi-lurid crime novels but uh, mm -hmm. that was that was charles's thing you know he could have gotten in on the ground floor and you know bezos himself transformed as a human being so substantially over the years oh, yeah 
success to become an unrecognizable person. I mean, I, I know him, you know, a bit. I mean, I've been in rooms with him probably 20 or 30 times in my life. And and just over the years, I was at Amazon. He went from being this, you know, kind of nerdy, um, geeky guy who was just, and he was always perfectly pleasant around me. Like I never saw that monstrous one people talk about, but I remember seeing him around 2017 and I hadn't seen him in person in two or three years. And he walked in and I'm like, he was jacked. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you don't worry about nerds who suddenly get jacked. That's the will, <laughs> the will to power and in, in action. Yeah, I just remember being like, "Wow, that's really weird." And he was always um, there was never bodyguards or anything around him on the Amazon campus early on. Um, I assume at home that he had people, but I left that meeting for a few minutes just to go to the restroom or get water or something. And there were these guys sitting outside, and I was like, "Oh, those have got to be bodyguards," you know, it's so like even in our secure campus, like things had really changed for him. And um, I couldn't help but wonder like how that off, I mean, I'm a writer. I was like, how does it feel to be him? Like, what is that like? Um, yeah. yeah. Well, so you, have, you have a prior book out called Nothing Good Can Come of This. And that's a memoir, I think of addiction and recovery. And I guess you mm -hmm. know how, how the Amazon experience ties into that, if at all. Yeah, yeah, it, it kind of does. I mean, I always tell people, I don't think Amazon made me an alcoholic, but it's a great breeding ground for it to, my alcoholism to thrive. Um, there's a lot of drinking in tech. Amazon's not unique, but like you could look around and see just bottles of whiskey on people's desks. You know, people would stop at six and have a vodka, usually something really nice, and then go back to work. Um, so I ended up doing like this like accidental man, thing. Man. <laughs> What's that? Like, like Mad Men. I mean, that's from another Yeah, era. yeah, exactly like Mad Men. I mean, a lot like that. When I worked in Amazon Publishing, so you've got Amazon and Publishing, two very boozy industries. Like, we had two bars on our floor, just little amateur things we built with just booze everywhere. And um, so I ended up getting sober about halfway through my Amazon career. And I remember thinking, oh, I'm never going to be able to make it here without drinking. Um, but I did. I figured it out. But, um, but yeah, it's... I think people in tech, they just drink. To, it's a self-medicating thing. I mean, some people just drink for fun, of course. Not everyone's an alcoholic, but but it's like, I'm going to drink and then I'm going to get back to work and the drink is my reward. And it was crazy. But I once I got sober, I realized like, oh, there's actually lots of people in the world and in tech who don't drink, you know, especially a place like Amazon where a lot of people came from India. Um, there were tons of guys who just like, are like, yeah, I've literally never had a drink, you know, or had one once in college. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was really something. There's an anecdote That's my father used to tell me from uh, AA meetings. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite stories was uh, a guy saying that his, his life had turned out so well in as a result of a, a windfall of profits for some company it started and he was feeling so delighted with himself that he started drinking yeah exactly. how could anything possibly this would make even better and exactly he got into trouble not because of stress not because no. of a horrible job but because he was so happy it's kind of weird that like when we have a happy occasion, we're like, well, we should celebrate by altering our minds. Like, what about the happiness? Isn't that enough? But um, yeah, it's um, it's such a strange thing that we we want to celebrate with booze. We want to console ourselves with booze. It's like and what happened is when I got sober, I, I realized, well, I have to find a way to work here where I can actually not need to drink. So, mm -hmm. you know, I had to just become blunter. I had to have better boundaries. I had to 
dial back my work mania a little bit. And honestly, you know, it, it was fine. Like it worked out fine. Um, they didn't come and like chase me out with a stick because I wasn't yeah. drinking myself into oblivion anymore. Um, I just, it took me a while to figure out that I could do that. I remember well, there speaking of, wait, speaking of drinking and celebrating, uh, you know, we, we, people who follow Hollywood elsewhere know that Jeff has, uh, very successfully uh, maintained his sobriety, but it must have been very difficult for you last night, Jeff, when Lily Gladstone had the triumphant <laughs> at the Screen Actors Guild. You must have thought, if I just had a bottle of champagne and uh, a fifth of Jack Daniels, I would be, or some fire water, maybe. Well, first of all, uh, my, my view of, of Lily Gladstone has never been that she's not good or that she's a bad performance. I've always felt she's sufficient. She's there's not a, a real issue with it. It's just obviously the role is not a lead role for openers that it never has. Yeah, but Lisa Rossman said something funny on our PBS show the other day. She said five minutes for a woman in a Scorsese film is a lead role. Yeah, okay. and that's not exaggerated. Be, that might be funny, but it's not really true. And that's it's not really typical, true. <laughs> that's, very, that's a very typical Lisa Rossman Bond moment. Kind of make the make the make the stabbing point without being particularly. <laughs> anyway, my, my initial reaction last May when I saw it in Cannes was this, she's absolutely going to win best supporting actress. And mm -hmm. I don't have any issue with that and good for her. And then my whole issue was when they decided to use the identity thing to mount a best actress campaign is completely unwarranted. Number one, she's not really delivering a powerhouse, uh, you know, really compelling, uh, a crafty performance it's, it's good it's fine but she's not great she's not she's not carrie mulligan great at, at not even close it, she's um, nowhere close to emma stone who is uh, astonishing in her in poor things so we we all know what's been going on and nobody will admit it except me you know nobody will say oh yeah she is doing an identity campaign at least nobody that i talk to but how is she going oh. to i mean emma stone is is my pick but how is 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 Lily Gladstone, who's doing publicity for a movie about Native Americans, who is Native American, like every journalist in the world is going to ask her about the connection between her own background and the film. Like, how is she going to get away from that? Is she supposed right. to just say, I want her fault? No. Yeah, I I didn't wanna... Go ahead. My feeling is that, you know, two things can be true at once. It is not disputable that given the opportunity to uh, performatively pat itself on the back. Hollywood as an institution will absolutely do that. And that yeah. does play a large part in the narrative concerning Gladstone and the Oscar and awards campaign. That said, I think you can make a case of her being deserving of the award. I think, you know, uh, we talk about powerhouse performances. Certainly Mulligan gave that. Certainly Stone gave that. Penelope Cruz, who was nominated for SAG Supporting Actress for her work in Ferrari, should have been in lead actress and should have won. That's I my favorite that. performance. Yeah. But the thing about Gladstone's performances, and I think this also applies to another performance that you're not approving of, which is Chillian Murphy as Oppenheimer. Both mm -hmm. of those roles are roles that rely on a very important um, thing in an actor's uh, vocabulary and very rare and very difficult, which is stillness. Both mm -hmm. of those roles have a very essential stillness. In the case of Molly in Gladstone's performance, that stillness 
uh, gives her an enigmatic quality where you don't quite know what she's thinking all the time and the motivations are not entirely clear and it's part and parcel of the difficulty of Killers of the Flower Moon as a viewing experience. In Murphy's case, the stillness is of this figure who is overwhelmed by both his own knowledge and the responsibility this knowledge brings. So I think that's all I'm gonna say about it. Those are my ways of making the case for these uh, actors. And honestly, stillness, people are gonna say I'm crazy for bringing this up, but stillness is a huge component of what makes Anthony Hopkins such a powerful actor. Mm-hmm. Look at his work in Silence of the Lambs. He's only in it for 29 minutes, lead acting right. performance. And yeah, he does the crazy eyes. He does the funny voice. He does the But a mm-hmm. lot of the performance is just standing. It's just him being still, like, being yeah. very still. And that contributes, that's that's his through line as an actor throughout his career. I don't know what Lily Gladstone's gonna bring in, in further performances. She may have more exuberance in her. I know that that's not her actual voice that's speaking as Molly Burkhart. That's a that's a performance component. So I would say I don't I don't mind at all what's going on, but I agree that this is a narrative that is something that is, you know. The whole idea, once you once you once you make the meme out of it, that she would be the first Native American to, you know, mm-hmm. to win the best actor, actress award at the Academy Awards, then it becomes kind of theoretically unstoppable. So you may have another disappointment ahead of you in a couple yes. of interesting thing is that the stillness on uh, on Lily Gladstone's part is partly due to the fact that she's been drugged the second half of the movie and she's just right. saying she's she's dying <laughs> not doing anything or saying anything i mean even when before the uh the horror of, uh, of her relationship with leo dicaprio uh she's not really all that dynamic either she's kind of just suspicious and kind of explained to her girlfriend why she finds him attractive ernest burkhardt i mean it's not these, are, these are people who are trapped in a very paradoxical situation in which they're very rich yeah and mm-hmm. they can't do anything about it there she's deemed mm-hmm. incompetent and if there's one thing i wish the film had made clearer it is actually laying out what the situation is because you're often sitting there going why is she sitting there and being told she's incompetent is she actually incompetent this was yeah. a weird thing about the way that the whites tried to take the Osage's oil rights for them. Because if they really wanted them that badly, why didn't they just out and out take them to begin with? Well, because they had gone through all the trouble in the late 19th century to create this reservation system and to say that we're going to stand up for this treaty and we're going to leave them in these re- reservation lands and we're going to leave them alone. And then boom, all of a sudden, holy moly, we've got all this oil land. Well, we've got to take it back from them, but it would be a bad precedent in terms of publicity to just go in and roll over them. So we're gonna sort of worm our way into them. So what we have at the beginning of Flower Moon is this insane labyrinthian spider's nest of deceit and mendacity that she herself is caught up in to the extent that she probably has this huge amount of self-doubt as a person. And if there's anything I would say that could have been made more clear in the film, it's that specificity of the predicament. I mean, I would say well, you want to talk about that her first um, moment in the film is saying she's like Molly Burkhart incompetent, like she's introducing herself and and you look at her and she's talking. And I'm like, this woman's clearly not incompetent and she can she knows it. And so we're right away. It's like I already am. She's having to lie about who she is just to go along to get along. And, you know. Part of the Claire's problem in the last hour is the writing, not so much her performance. And I think that 
Uh, you talk about stillness, Glenn, and I don't disagree with you, but nobody's mentioning even on this list, Annette Benning, uh, she doesn't have still moments because she's in perpetual motion in that, uh, that role. But I think that uh, to count her out is a mistake. I think Warren Beatty's been on the phone for the last six weeks talking to everybody. For, for him, that's three phone calls. But the the idea that she's not in this conversation when she it's a biopic about a real person, which is ca also catnip for Oscar voters, uh, and she took a year to get ready for this. I'm just really surprised. I don't think she's going to win now. I did earlier, but uh, I'm just really surprised she's not in this conversation. Stillness element is not enough people. Also, not enough people have seen the film. The film's just yeah. Out. I hear that. I hear that every year, Glenn, and then I go, wait a minute, it's on Netflix. As soon as something gets nominated. The 1,100 people or 1,200 people that vote absolutely turn their TV on and watch the movie. There's just no excitement. There's not much excitement around it. I mean, the performance I, I thought was too. exciting and that I, one was Jodie Foster's. But I mean, I, it, is a, it is a kind of narrative that Hollywood loves, though, like an older actress who did great athletic feats, who's never won. I mean, these are all stories. Yeah, five times. Who's a great actress? One of my very favorites. Um, I just don't see it happening this time. But yeah, I mean, you're right. There is like and kind of Hollywood royalty, the way Jamie Lee Curtis was last year. And I was the only person that said she was going. Everyone else had uh, Black Panther, and I just think I I, I just feel like uh, I, I'm I'm excited for Lily Gladstone if she wins. It's fine, but uh, to not even have Benning in the conversation, I think is wrong. I would be actually completely approving if, if Annette Benning were to suddenly strangely win. I would be delighted with that. It would be because I respect that performance a lot more than I do. It'd be cool to have a surprise. Now that it looks like Oppenheimer is green stamped all the way. I mean, I'd like to see something happen that night that isn't. Uh, I think that was removed. Any surprise was removed last night. Unfortunately, I'm sorry to say that. By the way, just for the, I thought the SAGs looked really good last night. I thought Netflix did a really good job producing it. I thought it had a a fresh feel. It looked like a, it actually looked like a show that had never been televised before, and mm -hmm. that this almost documentary and group came in. I didn't need an hour at the beginning. I fast forwarded through that, and I like that Netflix recorded it for me, so I didn't have to forget. But it was uh, nice, yeah. You know, it was yeah, really awful that uh, those interviews with the winners by the queer eye guy, the white haired mm -hmm. guy. Yeah, that got a little weird. I really didn't. And, yeah, that was dead air as far as I'm concerned. I want to mention on Gladstone, Jeff. I don't know if you've seen her in um, Kelly Reichert's film. It, wait, is it Some Women or Certain oh, Women? Yes, I have seen her. Certain, certain, certain Women, right? Certain, so... certain Women is the Kelly Reichert film. Some Girls is the Rolling Stones album. That's right, and an old, old Jennifer Connelly film. Um, it's, she's so stillness really comes through there, but it's like a radiant stillness. Great. You know, yep. she's sitting in this classroom just just in love. And I it is a it is like a beautiful quality she has that I think maybe just wasn't shown to its best effect here. Um I mean I have no problem if she wins, but um but it's it is a recessive performance, partly because of the way the film is written. That was a in fact, I think she won the was it the best actress with from the Los Angeles film critics for that. I think so, something like that. Yeah. That's really all it was. Her just staring at Kristen Stewart. And rapture, just lost, and she, and then she but goes. I it. <laughs> just like, just like you did at Cannes during a Personal Shopper, Jeffrey. Oh yeah, well, <laughs> I, I, I was like completely swooning with that film. And I, I love Personal Shopper. I really do. <laughs> I thought uh, I've seen it like four or five times. I own the Criterion Blu-ray. I think amazing. Uh, Playoffs is greatest. Yeah, Criterion Blu-ray. I did the essay for that. Check oh really? Out. Okay. 
It's good stuff. So it's a beautiful yeah. job, and I, I I love the. I remember the people booing that film, booing. Yeah. And and I said, what is wrong with these people? Because it was a, uh, it was it was not a conclusive. Uh, this is exactly what's happened type of thing, right. but it was fascinating, and it really just left you kind of humming inside. And I was really very happy with it. That uh, was the second film she made where she played a Hollywood assistant. I just want that. I want that director and and Kristen Stewart to just continue making yeah. movies where she plays assistants to celebrities because she's very, very good at it. Very delightful, <laughs> Olivier Assayas. Yes. Interjecting uh, just for a second about Kristen Stewart has. Either any of you guys seen the last two, the latest lesbian movies, the one that's one that's called Love I will Lies see, Bleeding? I will see Love Lies Bleeding on Tuesday, I think. Um, yes, that is Tuesday, Love Lies Bleeding at 10 a.m. I would have seen uh, Drive oh, Away Dolls, but I had to do this fucking podcast for someone. On Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> I Another one today, besides so, this one? I don't know, yeah. Um, when you said the the email, when you sent the email, have you seen the two lesbian movies? I'm like, oh, you mean um, the killing of Sister George and the Fox? Yeah, I've seen those two. Um, <laughs> lesbian movies are nothing new. Let's face it. Um, hey, Glenn, you're, people, people, who, people, people who are listening to this won't care, but people who are watching it will. Your um, head is a little cut off. If you could, I have your look. Yeah, a, little, a tiny bit, a tiny bit. There you go. Oh, there you go. Now, by um, the way, uh, as we all know, it, this this project for quite some time was called uh drive away dykes and that was a a, a title that uh that even that you knew would never make it to market that was never going to make it no. well, they, they said in this interview with ann thompson that they it was really they broke their heart when they had to give it up because focus said we can't go with this it'll be problematic there'll be people offended it's considered uh you know the acronym is dad i think i think, I think they're work. being i think they're being a little disingenuous there i think if they had any actual hope of that title making it to market they are out of their cotton. They're out of their, excuse me, ever loving minds. Loving minds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, would you guys say end. that they're, would, would you guys agree that they're in their 2024 minds that driveway dykes would have been something easily could have come to the screen 10 years ago? No, I don't think you'd ever do it. You wouldn't even do it. I in think the it would 70s. have been harder. You wouldn't even do it. Roger not even, Corman would have. Not even the seventies. No, Roger Corman never used dykes. He was, you know, it's caged heat. It's all euphemisms. They never, you know, Let's we can make some lines of demarcation of what you can and cannot get away with nowadays. But driveway dykes, not even Sam Lake uh, doing, uh, you know, grindhouse New York roughies in the '60s could get away with driveway dykes. If anything, I think it might have been harder ten years ago. Like I can see a, it's never would have happened, but I can see a faction of lesbians today being like, yeah, no, we're dykes. Um, you yeah. know the troche kind of kind yeah. of subculture but but you know like a marketing team they want to remove all friction like that is their job is to remove right. any friction between like the movie and people seeing the movie they're not gonna they're not gonna fuck around with that It'll i just want to tell you i apparently i'm the only one who's seen it at the very very end there is a shot of, like a, of a brick mm -hmm. wall and the uh the title is painted on the wall and mm -hmm. it's, it's drive away dykes. Now this is something apparently they shot some time ago, intending to use it at the ending credit, but they didn't change it. I mean, they could have technically CG'd it and made it into something mm -hmm. uh, drive away dolls. But I thought it was fascinating that they 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 believed enough in the in that title being accepted and being used that they actually shot a closing credit sequence with the word dykes. So, or that yeah. was their secret way. They were like, we can sneak it in. We can get away with it in the movie, but not in the advertising. I mean, oh, okay. 
Who right. knows? Her first film, I haven't, I want to see both. I haven't had a chance, but um, her, for that I'm forgetting her name, but St. Maud was an interesting horror film that I thought was a little overhyped for what it was, but it was what I call a great calling card. Um, you know, it was like saying like, Hey, I'm really talented. I can do a lot of interesting things. And the yeah. final product was a little underwhelming, but I was like, Oh, she's interesting. She's worth watching. I was talking, Oh, there's Glenn's uh, tiger from the Scarface book, which mm -hmm. means he wants to uh, segue into his book. And we'll do that <laughs> very quickly. Uh, but I just wanted to ask about um, the the Kristen Stewart uh, film, which is called Love Lies Bleeding, which is uh, I'm waiting for my memory to click in and say what her name is. Rose something. Rose, it's coming. Yeah, to I'm going to look it up, actually. I do not remember. By the way, uh, Jeff, when you watched Personal Shopper, did you think someday she'll be on the cover of Rolling Stone because you got your wish? But not yeah, that way. was, uh, you know, that was an act of provocation. The idea was to make it uh, almost uh, like a, you know, kind of a almost pornographic on some level. I mean, the idea was to indicate uh, strongly, you know, sexual heat and perspiration and, you know, on the brink of orgasm and all that stuff. So it's not really. Uh, and fighting and sweat, right, which are part of the yeah. movie. It's Rose Glass. That's, that's Rose the Glass. Yeah. And I was trying to, add, basically, uh, I was talking to a uh, friend, Sasha, who was saying, you know, it'd be much more interesting for most of us if these uh, films, these two uh, lesbian films were, uh, it featured really attractive kind of lip lipstick le lesbian types, which is what I had said initially. These are not dr dramatically, uh, uh, you know, exciting women from a appearance standpoint. I'm not trying to say they're ugly. But you're a straight man. I mean, I think I think I think they're both hot as fuck. Um, but also, I'm a straight woman, so I mean, there there's an. You find the what's her name? Uh, the 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 buffed up uh, bodybuilder. Like my type, but I mean, yeah, I think she looks fantastic. Okay. Jeff, 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 Jeff. What are we going to do with you? You can't go a whole podcast without. <laughs> Coming up with sure. what I call uh, Wells bait, which I'm is going to have everybody clicking on this now. Every now and the, then you the, have to introduce. Just to be just straight, the lesbians, I don't, I shouldn't say just to be straight. The lesbians weren't hot enough for you in either of these movies. No, they weren't, frankly. And I think that it's not that much to ask, given that 95% of us out there are, are straight. And, you know, including women, we're all intrigued by beauty. What's so terrible about that concept? I mean, you can you can ask. It's not necessarily going to be your 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 ask is not considered. going to be met with a uh, with a with a yes. And certainly in the past, there's plenty of stuff for you to look at. Yeah, I recommend Italian horror movies from the '70s featuring Edward Fenich. They're not lesbian themed as such, but they might be prettier. Lesbian well themes, <laughs> lesbian attractions, some giallo. Maybe I'll make you a highlight reel. Cut out all the blood. They're very attractive. But the Not, fact of the matter is, if you're a queer, if you identify as a queer filmmaker right now and you're making films, you are you are going to um, uh, pitch your films to uh, queer audiences or what you think of queer ally audiences. And it's not the, the point of making these kinds of films, you know, even to a certain extent, The Killing of Sister George with Susanna York and the seduction scene of Susanna. Now, in The Killing of Sister George is a really bitter, vitriolic film where these two older lesbians compete for the affections of this very, uh, of of what would be if if it were a, in a male uh, gay uh, kind of context, would be a twink, 
only it's a female and it's Susanna York and she's very young and she's very fresh and she's very nude and she's being pursued it's by wonderful. these two, these two women. It's, well, it's, it's, one, it's, it's wonderful. Wells yeah. approval. <laughs> It's Coral Brown and she are, I mean, it's, Brown, that's Coral the kind Brown of lesbian thing I'm talking about. Why did yeah, why yeah. it so, uh, such a terrible idea in 2024? I don't, re-rent the, re the hunger. Okay. Yeah. They just made the movie, they did not make the movie you wanted them to make. And I understand being, being like, no, I wanted this other movie, but they made this one. Yeah. If I'm watching they, a movie about, about gay guys, I put myself into the, into the shoes of the gay characters. And I think, would I be interested in that guy? Am I? Do I find him intriguing? Is there something about him? We we all do that. And I. And just, what kind of shoes are those, Jeff? They're well, not white sides. They're definitely not white sides. For instance, I related very much to Brokeback Mountain. I understood the the mutual attraction. You know, it's not that hard to do. The idea is to reach out to the person in the middle who's not necessarily, uh, you know, gay or or lesbian, and just try and bring them into the experience. That's not so. But we don't all have the same. The, we aren't all turned on by the same stuff. I mean, like like beauty i mean there is this one idea of what is beautiful but like people get attracted to all kinds of people for all kinds of reasons and it's not like these women are troglodytes i mean like they may not do it for you but like kristen stewart is a sex symbol for millions of people yeah. and she's made I think a lot, lot of people, people. If, I if i understand properly love lies bleeding it's not as if the um the lesbian love affair is incidental to the plot it's central to the plot central, but it's, not, yeah. it's not the whole thing the whole thing is something else entirely and it's very intense and there's crime and there's betrayal. It looks to yeah. me like almost at close range, only with a lesbian uh, mm. love plot instead of uh, oh, you know, family. At close betrayal. range wasn't as sexy as, as the Kristen Stewart film is. If there's a lot of great sexual scenes in that film. It's very hot and heavy. And the one thing the one that I had a problem with is there's a toe-sucking, toe-chewing scene, which I thought was a problem. So... Chewing or sucking? Look, there isn't Bill a... reacts right away. If I mention something that's a problem, go cut in. No, but I think if you're trying to get sponsors for this podcast, maybe we should sponsor your non sequiturs or your. Uh, we could have uh, you know a moment of brought to you, but this non sequitur by Jeffrey Wells. <laughs> you by you remember uh, Lou Reed had a live album called "Take No Prisoners," where he primarily just did Don Rickles, Lenny Bruce stand up routine over his band vamping to his songs and in one of his uh in one of his numbers he was excoriating rock critics he, he was making fun of john rockwell for having a bodyguard and then he started in on robert criscow and called robert criscow a toe fucker <laughs> that's, that's pretty good well, that a picture. Yeah. and criscow's Chris response in his review was i thank lou for pronouncing my name right <laughs> that's good the only possible comeback. Yeah. Right. Well, can we? Uh, I mean, I'm. Uh, can we talk about any uh, 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 films about same-sex attraction that really got to us on a primal level? Not just that we appreciated that it was well made, but we felt the desire. We felt the. We felt that we were in that film, and it made it really meant something to us. It I mean, broke back. I think is you. They really sell it. Yeah. <laughs> I completely felt emotionally, that. physically. I mean, it's a it's a beautiful, a beautiful yeah. story. Yeah, Mr. Um, McCarty, what about your? What does the Irishman have to say about being enmeshed in a in a scenario that's not necessarily yours? But you know, did you feel it? Where did it? When what film made you actually feel it? 
deep down. Well, I mean, do, do I live through them? No. I'm watching the lives of other people, as I think most people are. I wonder, too, if some of the things that you've enjoyed over the years with lesbians in it were made by straight, probably white men like yourself. And, and I think that maybe there's more inclusion now uh, in front and behind the camera. And I wonder if we're dealing with an insensitive topic right now in terms of that category when we're making these kinds of statements. I think uh, I, they, uh, the late great, or I shouldn't call him the late, I thought uh, Timothy Chalamet and... Uh, uh, Not late. Oh, Army uh, Hammer. Army Hammer. Right? Army Hammer, right. Yeah. yeah. I, I thought that was, I thought that film was quite fine, actually. And yeah. I oh, thought, yeah, that was a great film. Mm -hmm. I thought that uh, it was heartbreaking for him and mm -hmm. for Chalamet. And I just thought uh, that that I understood that film and I understood the feelings he was going through because they weren't so different from straight people. I mean, okay. and and again, that may be an insensitive thing for a straight guy to say, uh, but it, I felt something for that film. Mm -hmm. uh, it was interesting. I, I remember the reaction after Call Me By Your Name was starting to get around and there was the reaction from the more avant-garde uh, gay filmmaking clique, if you will, that these straight friendly films about gay people are not cool enough. They're not, um, you know, they're they're holding back. And we have to be more upfront, more honest, more real about what gay sexuality is. Well, that's a different kind of film. I mean, I mean, Call Me By Your Name has a certain, I mean, not that much delicacy to it, but I mean, that's normal. There's always going to be factions of people in the arts who want to do something more extreme, whether that's horror or sexuality or like, that's okay. Like, but other people can still do their own thing. I mean, Call Me By Your Name was a nice try. I mean, you know, it's interesting that this is a film of a love affair between two guys and the only nudity in the film is from the female character played by Louis, uh, Philippe Garel's daughter, Estelle. Mm -hmm. uh, I liked, uh, I thought Brokeback put it across pretty well. I thought um, Maurice, the James Ivory film, th that more of a sense of almost spiritual longing was very, very good. Mm -hmm. I think Celine Chiama's films, Portrait of a Lady on Fire and Water, Lily do a good Excellent, job. excellent film. Yeah. That's um, yes. You know, Desert Hearts is more about the problem, the, the, the dilemma of it in a social period. I mean, if you're talking about sheer hotness, there's Bound. And Bound... Down's scenes almost play like scenes made by straight guys for the delectation of straight yeah, guys. That's what I'm talking about. That's the kind of lesbian surprise, but surprise, surprise, the two filmmakers turn out to be trans women after all. So and yet it's <laughs> both. both? Yeah, and they're, yet both. That yeah, they're both. Both Wachowski's are both now transition. Both transition. But it's a very male gaze movie. I mean, I like it a lot, but it's a super male gaze movie for a lesbian film. And so oh, it is please. funny that they both are yes. transitioned, you know. When I was they a kid, fully when I was spiritually a kid, transitioned at the time. When I was a kid, I remember seeing an adult magazine on the racks at a some uh, delicatessen where my father and I were, my father was a uh, route man for National Foods, Wise Potato Chips, and he sometimes let me come on his trips with him. Uh, and I would I would not work. I would just go look at the magazines. Um, yeah, I'd unload the truck, and then he'd set up the display because he knew how to do it. But I'd look at the magazines, and there was some sort of like minor smut magazine, and one of the cover lines was "How Lesbies Make Out," and that has been sort of the purview of male right. gay films about lesbians <laughs> since then and going into the modern era. Mm -hmm. Now, Bill, 
Bill, you implied that there was a, that because Robert Aldrich directed the kiss, the, the killing of Sister George, that that was a kind of a straight man's take on 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 an erotic scene between a couple of women, right? And I think well, I, I, I didn't. I, I'm not sure. I was just speaking broadly in terms of uh, there may be a lot of uh, gay filmmakers out there now who are saying we want to tell these stories instead of straight white men doing it. The hunger certainly would the killing and the killing of Sister George, despite having really provocative content therein, it was one of the this was during the era when uh, like which lasted maybe six months where you could put out an X rated film and it wasn't entirely excoriated. It was the time, you know, Midnight Cowboy made it through the theaters of the next and I believe Killing a Sister mm -hmm. George in the next film. Was that like not so much a film about lesbianism or lesbian and desire as mm -hmm. it is about competition and right. uh, envy and uh, the lesbian stuff, which is quite explicit, but it's it's kind of secondary to the main theme, which is this kind of predatory, uh, competitive um, vibe between these uh, powerful characters, and that's that's the main that's the pretext. But in the 70s, when I was coming up, we, we didn't see any of that on screen. I remember, I think uh, I'm 66. So in the 60s, I was, t you know, 10, 11, 12, 30. The Children's Hour was the first movie uh -huh. that I remember explicitly being about that. And it was all suggested and all off screen. That was also about, about punishing lesbians for being gay, right? Yeah. Well, I think that was the sensibility by most storytelling early on in the tellings of those uh, those stories. There there had to be a great price to pay because these were not normal people or they weren't doing what the what the rest of us do. Was the children's hour like 64 or something? 63? 63, I think. Yeah. That was Weiler's own remake of We Three, which he felt he couldn't make properly back in the 30s because of censorship. And even the children's hour was relatively... Uh, restrained, you know, while yeah. his, his life went on, tried to get more and more in terms of uh, taking advantage of the new freedoms that happened after the production code. And I think his last film was The Liberation of L.B. Jones. But he yeah. felt sufficiently unconstrained by the early 60s to do the children's hour. But again, even that was uh, had to be very low key. And the, the year of that film was, in fact, 1961. So that's, that's, and, that's and that's really that's a rather a bit before um, you know, this is kind of on the cusp of Preminger telling the production code to go to hell with the moon is blue and then just sort of like hammering yeah. away at it until the mid 60s up until even, you know, skidoo. Am I wrong in recollecting that Shirley McLean's character hangs herself at the end of the children's hour? Oh, no. Yeah, I think that's yeah. absolutely true. And then the following year, Don Murray's character, who Don Murray, who just left us a few. That weeks. was the other thing, advice and consent, the gay, the first depiction of a gay bar in a mainstream Hollywood film. Uh, it's shown as a place of shadows and darkness <laughs> Iranian cave of shadows and darkness with a Frank Sinatra song on the jukebox that's one of my favorite oh, really? credits. that's one of my favorite credits in the history of movies because um, Sinatra was so grateful to uh, to Preminger for casting him in the man with the golden arm that he would do anything for him and he had a Sinatra song on the soundtrack on the jukebox in the film, I forget which song it is, but the actual opening credits of Advise and Consent have the cast list, and the final cast credit is And the Voice of Frank Sinatra. Wow. <laughs> nice. Wow. Wow. And that was the favor. That was the call. That in. was the favor to let him use it in a gay bar scene, even. I, that I, must I, have killed Sinatra. Heart, of, my, heart of Mine is the song, Jerry Fielding, Ned Washington. Hmm. 
I seem to recall a, a scene. Now, Don Murray is a senator, I believe. Brigham something. Brig. Brig. Mm -hmm. And he goes into the, to a gay bar. I think it's, he's, he's a very conflicted, mostly straight, uh, very closeted fellow. But when he goes into the gay bar, this look on his face of kind of horror and, and doesn't know what to feel, but he's very upset and very uh, uncomfortable being in this environment. Well, he had this army affair, as, as, they, as they would do sometimes right. in the army. Right. And there's a letter from uh, his lover from World War II. Yeah, and, I have to talk to you. And yeah. he goes to New York to confront him. And there's that really creepy scene where he goes to the house of a character who's kind of a gay quasi-pimp played by the very obese Larry Tucker, who has a bunch of cats in the apartment. Larry uh -huh. Tucker played a similar character in the great Grindhouse Noir Blast of Silence, but... Weirdly enough, after playing these very creepy, uh, shadowy characters, his main brief in life was part of a comedy team with Paul Mazursky. He ended mm. up being the co-writer of several Mazursky counterculture films, including Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. That was Larry Tucker's screenplay. And it is interesting uh, that Advice and Consent was out in 62, but two years later, there was The Best Man, mm -hmm. and that was also Washington-related. It's about a campaign uh, in, in Los Angeles. Yeah. Or the, and, and I think, right, there's some sort of blackmail, uh, kind of a similar blackmail theme, but the best man being, especially being adapted for a stage play, kind of stays in the uh, stays in the back rooms. It doesn't go out. The thing that made Advise and Consent so interesting, uh, out of many things, I think it's the best film ever made about Washington, uh, bar none. Mm -hmm. uh, the great thing about that film is that it goes outside of it and it goes into those environments and you see... Uh, Don Murray's performance is very good. It's it's not like um, it's not subtle, but it's um, he just has this he just has this sheer terror on his face the whole time. Like he can't stand what he's done, but also that he knows that this, that it isn't something he's done. It's part of his nature, and mm -hmm. yeah. And then he he yeah he he dies. The reason I brought up the best man is because that also connects to a World War Two. Uh, episode between Cliff Robertson, who is a kind of a Richard Nixon-like figure, mm -hmm. who had uh, an episode with a guy in the Pacific somewhere, and he is threatened with exposure of this by, oddly, a kind of comedic character played by Shelley Berman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Again, this is just this is just straight Hollywood being more comfortable with the danger aspect of a B subplot in a movie and not the lead story in a with a happy ending. It's always the we're gonna we're gonna tell you went into that gay bar and uh, threatening somebody. The other thing that was kind of appalling for a long time was you mentioned comedy a moment ago. I remember really the only exposure outside of extremely dramatic films that we a couple of which we've talked about is broad, over the top, campy humor. Uh, mm -hmm. Even in the James Bond movie uh, Diamonds Are Forever, there are two hitmen that are a couple. And I remember watching that as a kid, like 12 or 13, and thinking, this is really offensive. I mean, this is like this cartoonishness that all gay characters are, or most gay characters were subjected to during that whole period was kind of not cool. And uh, I t it took me out of the movie, and I, and I remember people laughing at it. And I'm sure at a couple of places, if they said something funny, I laughed too, and I, you know, will express my guilt now. But like, 
I just thought that's what all gay people were like for a long time. The, right. the funny teacher, the cute, uh, you know, uh, waiter. It was it, that's all we saw. And it's interesting too because the gay uh, hitmen trope uh, was not originated in Diamonds Are Forever. Uh, it goes back to the Joseph Lewis uh, mob film, The Big Combo, where huh. we have a pair of hitmen who are played by Earl Holloman and Lee Van Cleef, who live together and are clearly mm. meant to be involved. And we're interestingly enough, they're not particularly caricatured. They're just they just mm. are. The interesting but that wasn't is, for comic effect, right? No, I didn't see that. A, I mean, it, it makes them. It, it's meant to make them more creepy. That's for sure. But it right. was, but it also wasn't like the kind of overt nudge, nudge, wink, wink, look at these homosexuals caricature of Diamonds Are Forever. Those mm -hmm. two characters, Mr. Wint and Mr. Kidd, are played by one Bruce Glover, who's better known right. today as Crispin Glover's dad, mm -hmm. and also by a guy named Putter Smith, who was not even an actor. He was a jazz bassist who played with Thelonious Monk, Art Blakey, Duke Ellington, Jerry Mulligan, and uh, dozens and of other uh, uh, wonderful musicians. He was spotted by Guy Hamilton, the director of Diamonds Are Forever, while playing with Thelonious Monk at Shelly Mann's Jazz Club in Los Angeles, The Manhole, and uh, said, how'd you like to have a part in this movie? And cast him uh, to act, because he just liked the way he looked. Who needs Google when you got Glenn Kenny? <laughs> you know, this is all making me think of, it, this is like 1990. I was traveling with a bo uh, my boyfriend at the time in New England, and we were visiting his grandparents, who were these very old money New Englanders. She had been the poet laureate of the United States at one point, and and they had their summer house neighbors over for dinner. And it was this, these two men. One had written for the Alfred Hitchcock show, and the other one had done something else like that. And it was just like, oh, they share a house together in two places mm. and they're roommates. And, and they were probably both in their 70s by then. They were delightful. But I just remember kind of looking at my boyfriend, making eye contact, like, what are we all just pretending this is these men aren't a couple? And, and yeah, that's what we were doing. We all just pretended the whole night that these guys just happened to live in two homes together and not have wives yeah. and do it. Christy, we did that as a country for a long time. Yeah, the waspish, the, it's a very waspish thing, you know. Oh, you know, Mr. So-and-so and his friend. Yeah, uh, special <laughs> friend, like in all of us strangers. Is that your special friend? <laughs> or never. Weird, you know, when I was in high school, people used to call each other gay all the time. Like you. Yeah. you right. And, yeah, and then, yeah. you know, looking through, I, 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 was, I was doing a memorial for a friend of mine who passed uh, last week. And I was going through my old high school yearbooks. And it's like, well, that guy was definitely gay. And that guy was definitely gay. And, but none of it made any impact because everybody was calling everybody else gay anyway so we didn't even really know what being gay was and it's only right. like now that we're like oh yeah that guy was totally gay um right. and, and so i mean but yeah then it would be this thing where you know and i i you know considerably in wasp families the kind of you know families that james ivory would make movies about you know well it's mr so-and-so and his friend uh speaking of uh, wasps you know, and gay, uh, is is everybody watching Feud, the Truman Capote thing? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I watched, uh, three of them, not the fourth. I need, I need, I need to catch up. I'm, I haven't watched it. It's, it was produced by a very dear friend of mine, um, so it doesn't matter whether I watch it because you know I reap the benefits of his house in Stuyvesant anyway. But <laughs> um, you know, it, 
uh, he's very proud of it because he got to work with Russ, Gus Van Zandt. And yeah, Robert, the Gus Van Zandt thing is pretty Dave, crazy. That's really and cool. He's, yeah. He became very tight with Naomi Watts and loved the cast. And uh, I know how hard he worked on that show. He's, he, you know, he he's a guy who worked his way through locations into production. He His last location job was doing all the locations on The Irishman and then working his way into unit production management and now full-fledged producer. And now he's a full-fledged producer for the Ryan Murphy organization. And this mm -hmm. was a big deal for him. And it's, everybody loves it. We haven't watched it, but you know, that's, it uh, doesn't affect our relationship, but I, I will watch it. Naomi Watson's Bailey is like stealing the whole thing. What's your friend's name? Give him a shout out. Yeah. Uh, his name is Kip Myers and he's been given shout outs by Scorsese himself. Whenever Scorsese talks to the guild, when he was talking to the guilds about the Irishman, he always shouted out to Kip for you know putting five thousand miles on his uh, on his um, on his Subaru Forester, getting all the locations <laughs> for the Irishman. Christy, I thought you were going to be appearing with your Babe Paley glasses. Oh, you... yeah. <laughs> I was wearing. I don't have the photo here, but I I was wearing this kind of it's faux fur, but coat the other and these big sunglasses. And I thought back to the scene in the first episode where Babe Paley is walking yeah. into a circus or something, and I was like, "Holy shit! I'm actually dressed like her." I just need, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of backcombing. Um, I've really. I mean, Diane Lane is like my favorite actor and maybe my favorite person <laughs> i've loved her ever since we were both children and she made a little romance so uh, any chance of annie and little bridges what, what, what was first everybody's top 20 a little romance okay yeah yeah just just okay. she's just to watch her think on screen i just think she's so much better than most of the roles she gets but so and it's been fun to see women like actually of my generation like in lead roles i mean um, women over 50, it's incredible. But um, I do wish it were more fun. And I think structurally, it's a little bit like they put the whole story in episode one, and then they're just kind of noodling on it in the further ones. It's, it's a little bit odd, but I definitely recommend it. I mean, it's... Like I was saying, I thought that the third episode that goes mm -hmm. into Masquerade Ball, the black and white, fascinating from a uh, kind of a technical viewpoint. Yeah. Really yeah. caught up in it that much. Yeah, they, there's not a lot of momentum but it's it's interesting i just more have like i would love to ask the screenwriters like why they made the choices they did but mm -hmm. i certainly am gonna watch the whole thing i mean the acting's been just you can feel the actresses enjoying themselves yeah. like you can just feel them enjoying being with each other and getting to do this calissa flockhart i didn't know i missed her till she came back yeah. and i was like calissa great point demi moore demi yeah. moore is the scenery and not in a bad way she's right. really really violated in this thing and really like spewing oh, yeah. like vitriol and I, I i i think the whole thing is a lot of fun i and think you're all about everything everything gets laid out in the first uh hour so the rest is just everybody pissing and moaning and stewing and yeah. trying yeah. to get back at him and, and I, yeah. Uh, and what, by the way the, uh, the whole thing just very nonchalant <laughs> pretty good I love the opening credits also. A, a very yeah. elaborate and very salt bass. Good. You know, really got it's my energy. Sad Capote that we see too, because he is a wreck by the end of this thing. I mean, he's like, it's the beginning of the end for him. And we haven't, well, I haven't seen Infamous, but I mm -hmm. went back and rewatched Capote um, just last week. And we're not seeing that Capote there, like the one who is actively just popping pills and drinking all the time. Yeah. And, um, it's it's kind of grim. I mean, you really see the impact this has on him, and he also sort of brought it on himself. And but yet, I still feel sorry for him. Um, 
I yeah, love it him. brings but... to mind the Martin Amos recollection when he was interviewing Capote. He says, I knew the interview wasn't going well when he started, when he referred to me as Tony. Ah. <laughs> oh, by the way, rest in peace, Street Williams. I was, oh yeah, that's, that happened last summer, right? In Vermont. Too bad. Yeah. He's really yeah. good as Bill Bailey. He's great, actually. Yeah. He is. He's good. He's one of those actors I'm always happy to see, you know. I've been actually watching uh, Truman Capote's uh, appearances, of which there are quite a few, on the DeCavit show on YouTube. Yeah, mm -hmm. those are fun to revisit. And he's quite, you know, he, he was he knew how to handle himself on those shows. And I, I really oh, yeah. loved his his vibe. And I really it's delightful to go back. And I, I enjoy these clips almost as much as the um, the Swans series. So. My Rex Reed has been on the old uh, Cabot shows, too, if you have a chance to Google those. Okay. Who is that? Say and again. James Baldwin also. Yeah. Was James Baldwin on the Cabot shows? I'm thinking of James Baldwin in general on those talk shows. He was sort of just incredible. Well, yeah. was more of a, of a PBS firing line kind of guy. That's right. That's right. Not Cabot. Yeah. My first exposure to Capote was actually in Murder by Death, um, this old <laughs> Neil Simon film, because I'm 53 now. So I must have been like, it was on HBO like every fourth hour for about <laughs> four years. Back when HBO, there was Chapter Two, Murder by Death, and like, and this production of Something's Afoot, a movie, like a stage musical, and they would just rotate them. That was, the, so that was the second I, golden age of HBO because the first golden age is to throw Annie Hall over and over and over. Right, uh, and, Rob, and Robert Klein. <laughs> yeah, Robert Klein and Annie Hall, that's it. It was all Neil Not Simon. It's it HBO it and it's cool. Robert Klein and Annie Hall. Yeah. yeah. I just remember being like, who is this guy? Like I was a theater kid, um, like semi-professional. So I grew up with gay men around me. So like, I just thought it was just totally normal to be gay and they didn't act like him. I mean, some of them were twinkish, you know, but mm. I was just like, this guy's just bizarre. Like it was something about his manner. It goes well beyond gayness. It's just- But again, back to my point about comic relief that he was kind of a cartoon in that movie he needed the money we learned from the series and so he took mm -hmm. that role uh he was drunk the whole time apparently if the if the series is to be you can believed. kind of tell and yeah <laughs> and uh it's fun uh mm -hmm. but it, it was kind of I don't know. It was kind of taking advantage of him in a way. I think it's a little sad. Yeah. I mean, as a child, I didn't understand that. I just was like, "What is going on with this guy?" But yeah, it's it's a bit sad, and I kind of wish he hadn't had to. I've been struggling to think of a Bill Cuddy, Bill McCuddy level a segue into Glenn's book about Scarface, and nothing. Okay. Yeah, we've been remiss in that. Yes, yes, yes. Well, let's let's just plop right in here and just say that uh, Glenn. I I think that there's. Very few people who uh, enjoy and love and worship Scarface, myself included, who are cannot quote lines and scenes verbatim from this film. It's a very, very well revered uh, film. And I was just wondering, what did you and your publishers feel could be brought that could advance the narrative and enhance the, the legend, so to speak? Well, what happened was I had written this book about Goodfellas called Made Men, the Story of Goodfellas, which was a um, both a uh, chronicle of the making of Goodfellas and a look at the cultural impact that the movie had. And, um, you know, it, it was structured in such a way uh, because of my uh, it was structured around my own 
uh, personal experience of it. The first time I met Martin Scorsese as a media professional, I was working in a magazine called Video Review, and I went up to his office to ghostwrite an article with him about the impact home video had on cinephilia. And he was in the middle of cutting Goodfellas. So I knew a little bit about the film right off the bat and I opened my book with that. And then I go into the story of uh, Nick Pileggi meeting Henry Hill, the making of the film. I have this large section where I go through the film scene by scene and give a kind of like uh, literary commentary. And the book did reasonably well. It was released in 2020 during the, the pandemic. I was not able to promote it with any in-person events, I had to do everything on Zoom and uh, podcasts and phone calls. But the book paid out, and you know when the book pays out, you can write another book. That's the thing, mm -hmm. Christy can tell you that. And yep. so I, I, I had this idea where I didn't want to do another genre film. I wanted to uh, branch out because I didn't want to be ghettoized. And I spent six months working on a book about a film that I will not name here, uh, where a, a romantic comedy. And uh, eventually, the narrative that was emerging from that was certainly not the celebratory one that would be marketable in a book. And also, then people stopped talking to me. Uh, and people started, they didn't like and, the sound of this project? I think the filmmaker's family just sort of got involved and said, we don't want this to happen. Mm -hmm. um, without, name, without naming the book, did everybody in the romantic comedy hate one another? Uh, no, I don't think that's the case at all. But uh, certainly I was not having a good time getting a hold of the two lead actors. I think okay. I, only, I, 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 I spoke to one supporting actor. And if I tell you who it was, you'll be able to figure out who, what the film was. So uh, tell us. It was Sleepless. <laughs> it, was, it was Sleepless. It was Just Sleepless, sleepless in Seattle. And that was going to be the book. That was going to be the topic. And okay. at a certain point, I had had a um, talk um, scheduled with someone who was a close friend of Nora Ephron and who's, uh, I was close friends with this person's daughter and she was gonna set the whole thing up for me. And the daughter got in touch with me and said, yeah, they don't wanna do the interview anymore. They feel like they shouldn't talk about Nora. I'm like, okay. Oh, um, and, yeah, I, and then Rosie, Rosie O'Donnell canceled her interview. Tom Hanks wouldn't talk to me. Meg Ryan, who we have the same agency. She wouldn't talk to me. So, and then everybody I would talk like Jeffrey Townsend, the production designer, hated Nora Ephron's guts and oh. would wow. complain about. Yeah, she did some, and, yeah. you know, the writer, the screenwriter was like, it was great that she did this book, but she put she did my screenplay, but she put a joke in there that I hated and I hate her for it. And I'm like, mm. uh, <laughs> so it became this whole thing of like, mm. uh, and I realized and once people stopped talking to me, I'm like, well, that's the end of that. So I thought, well, don't be a schmuck. Do another genre film. Do another gangster film. Do well, what wait a minute. Speaking speaking of schmucks, did we goad you into that? Because we can cut that whole thing out if you fine. don't no, want. No, no, it's fine. I mean, it's going to come out. We have an exclusive. It's for going listeners. to come out eventually anyway, and it's fine. And the book didn't happen. The Scarface okay. book happened because we talked about it with my publisher. Let's do something with this. I got the cooperation of Brian De Palma, which was very important. I got Oliver Stone on board. I got a lot of people on board. And we went, we did the same more, you know, we kind of did the same drill as the Goodfellas book. We have a making of, we have a scene by scene breakdown. With Scarface, it's even more fascinating than Goodfellas because what happened with Scarface is it became, it was a reasonable hit when it came out in 1983, but it wasn't a huge hit. It wasn't the kind of hit that made Universal say, let's invest more in these kind of movies at all. But 
once the hip hop community embraced it, it took on a life all of its own and became a a, a big cult thing. It, it is it was at one point the biggest selling item of Universal Home Video, uh, mm. and it's it's got a half life that's unbelievable. I mean, Goodfellas is a well respected film and a, a widely quoted film and a film that if you were watching stand up comedy during the '90s, you figured every stand up comic has seen Goodfellas, uh, <laughs> and. But I think Scarface actually has an even bigger cultural footprint. So, and as far as what I can bring new to the table, I will tell you this, it's not for publication, but I'll tell you myself, uh, when Brian De Palma read The Galley, uh, he wrote to me on Christmas Eve, he said, uh, can anything else be said about Scarface? I think not, congratulations. And that's wow. a good book. And I hope to get him involved in some promotional projects. We're doing a launch on May 14th at the Mysterious Bookshop in downtown Manhattan, my favorite bookstore. Yeah. Uh, doing other uh-huh. events as well. Uh, and hopefully, I hope Brian will come along for some. I think Stephen Bauer will certainly be involved. I had the best time with Stephen Bauer, the guy who plays Manny. He gave me the most stuff. Uh, it mm. was impossible to schedule him. So we spent like six months falling in love with each other, trying to schedule. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but then once we got him, I couldn't I couldn't shut him up. So I have like four hours of uh, of uh, Stephen Bauer, and uh, you know I'd say a good three and a half hours of it is gold. Although I couldn't use all. Wow. Of it. Is he a working he actor a, still? He is still a working actor. Yeah, uh, he was he was I in. Don't need to be rude. He, I just... he does a lot. He does a good deal of television. He does some indie films. He's around. He's you know he's he's scrappy. He looks for work. Um, I got Michelle Pfeiffer, which is not an easy get, but I, was, I, did get I was gonna her. ask, yeah, yeah. Uh, and she was great. She was lovely. She's so interesting because, you know, she's very frank about her experience. She's proud of the work that she did on the film, but mm-hmm. she said every minute on the set was torture. And it wasn't because she was being mistreated or disrespected by mm-hmm. anybody. It's just that her level of confidence was so low. She was always afraid that she was screwing up. She had no, uh, kind of feeling for the value of what she was doing, and she was miserable. But she's but that to- works for the film. She looks frightened all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, well, the one thing, the one direction that Brian always gave her, and she talks about Brian being very good and very sympathetic. She says, but Brian, after every take, the one thing he would ask her was, "Did you smile?" Because she wasn't supposed to smile. She mm-hmm. really thought, you know, there was a notion that she would try to warm the character up just a little bit. And Brian said, I appreciate you want to do this. I know <laughs> I know that you have the ability to do it, but for right. the purposes of the role, you can't do it. Although there is one scene where she does it, and I won't say what it is, but when mm-hmm. you read the book, we go into it, and it's an improvised scene. It's a scene between her and Pacino where she does laugh. And where she's in the cream puff Cadillac. There yeah, you she's go. in the See, car. Jeff, 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 you are good for something. <laughs> where he comes on to her yeah. and she says I don't fuck the help which is her standard mm-hmm. line and she's very harsh and yeah. you think it's going to sort of just sit there because when you say I don't fuck the help that's kind of like that's a pretty mm-hmm. that's a pretty hard door slam but <laughs> he, he, takes, he takes off her hat and he puts on the hat yes. and that was something uh, that was improvised in the take that wasn't prepared for and so she starts laughing Mm-hmm. And that's her real reaction, and they 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 kept that take, and I think it's right. I think it's it shows a little variety to Tony's character, and it shows a little bit, you know, we think about you know why these female characters tumble for these guys, mm-hmm. you know, 
we wonder about that in terms of uh molly and killers with flower moon one mm -hmm. you know one thing about um about uh michelle pfeiffer character calling falling for tony montana that gives you a little bit of it there are moments right. for that right. that's useful moments, and they kept yeah. it and it was a and it was a totally improvised thing by the way, isn't Stephen Bauer's actual name, last name, Echeverria? Echeverria, yeah. He changed it. It's the name of his maternal grandmother. As Stephen himself points out, when we talk about Cuban ethnicity, that too is a big melting pot. And his uh, a, a good portion of his family is uh, are Europe, are, are German immigrants to Cuba. But his father is Hispanic. And his father actually was an airline pilot and he gave Stephen his blessing to make the name change because he would talk about how his name Echeverria was just such a getting mangled by all these air traffic controllers. It's just, you know, the juice isn't worth the squeeze of maintaining your uh, ethnic uh, nominal identity. So he said, yeah, go yeah. change your name. And they didn't, you know, that was when Pacino first met uh, Bauer. He's like, what, you're Cuban, your name, but your name's Bauer. And he, he laid it out for us. Yeah. And mm -hmm. uh, Pacino's accent, incidentally, is something that he worked on with Bauer for several months. And it's mainly derived from Bauer giving Pacino uh, lessons in how his father talked. Ah. And, and, then, and then Pacino stretching that out and making a kind of a, 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 weir a weird kind of, uh, not cartoon of it, but definitely exaggeration of it. So that's mm -hmm. there's an actor who's interrogating Al Pacino in the very first scene we see him in. And we learn later, I learned that year, I believe, that it was Charles Durning who dubbed him. Yes, but, well, it's not just Durning, it's Durning and Dennis Franz. Uh, you know, I think, wow. uh, you know, De Palma was not necessarily happy with the audio in that scene. And he had these two guys to call on it, probably an afternoon's worth of work, and they get the job done. But yeah, it's Charles Durning who had previously appeared in Sisters for De Palma and Dennis Franz, who had been fantastic as the... Uh, homicide investigator in uh dress to kill and then the the sleazy porn merchant and blowout but then dress to kill where he says i want you to find your friend ted i want you to get him in town and downtown and in here that was the apotheosis of early dennis friends and uh de palma you know we don't talk about de palma in terms of having a rep company but certain of these actors dennis friends charles durning william mm -hmm. finley who appear in multiple de palma films are always very interesting and eccentric screen presences, to be sure. True, yeah. De Palma, De Palma lives out here in the Hamptons now, and he wrote a children's book or two, I think, with his wife. Really? Uh, Susan Lehman, and his partner, they wrote a thriller called Are Snakes Necessary, which was published, you know, we're coming full circle now, published by my friend Charles R. Dye's Hard Case Crime. That's a great title, Are Snakes Necessary? What's the name of the book that Henry Fonda is reading in The Lady Eve? Oh, ah, really? <laughs> it's a meta-textual meta title. I love hey, it. Glenn, one quick question about that film. Did did lines like, or the line, uh, say hello to my little friend, did that become uh, colloquial instantly when the film came out, or was that later when the when it became sort of cult? Uh... I'd say say hello to my little friend was pretty instantaneous. The other stuff, like first you get the power, then you get the money, then you get the women. That mm. came about because of hip-hop sampling yeah. and the 10 crack commandments and there's a chapter where we talk about this very interesting project that a record company executive put together called music from and inspired by the movie scarface which starts mm -hmm. with 
Grandmaster Flash's White Lines, which actually came out kind of simultaneous to Scarface, and then going into the future with guys like Naz and uh, literally a rapper named Scarface and Biggie, mm -hmm. Notorious B.I.G.'s Ten Crack Commandments, unbelievable stuff. There was mm -hmm. a scheme that Universal wanted to have that would replace the Giorgio Moroder score with hip hop songs. And uh, there mm -hmm. were a lot of people at Universal who were very in favor of it. They thought they could make more money. Pacino actually liked it. Some, you know, uh, some people involved in the film actually were very um, keen on the idea. And De Palma, who had final cut, always said no, because he's like, no, this is not this is not what I do. This is, mm. I'm not going to compromise. You know, I got I, I had Giorgio Moroder make this score for a reason. It works for the film. It's what I want. And no, this is not good. You know, De Palma is. Uh, and I think that's honorable. I think it's very honorable and His own guy. honorable and aesthetically correct for him to do that. There's also that been, there's this like internet meme going around that Spielberg directed some of the shootout at the end. Huh. And Pacino himself actually has been contributing to it because when I saw Pacino speaking at the 92nd Street Y, he talks about burning his hand on the muzzle of the gun. Now, the gun doesn't have live ammo in it, but it's because it's designed to put out muzzle flash. It still gets very hot. And at one point he reached over for the gun and he grabbed it by the muzzle and he burned his hand. He had to go to the hospital where he spent wow. a week healing up. So De Palma, in the meantime, is... Uh, shooting the hell out of the shootout sequence. And it's great for him because he doesn't have Pacino there and he can do whatever he wants because Pacino is always asking for more and more takes. This was the reason the movie, one of the reasons the movie went so far over schedule is because he just, you know, between Marty Bregman being on Pacino's side and Pacino mm -hmm. being Pacino and all the actors kind of being on Pacino's side too. Barra told me he felt bad for De Palma because what would happen after one take is that Pacino would look at Bauer and say, well, what'd you think of that? And Bauer would be like, knowing what to say to Al, which I think we could do better. Yeah, so whatever. So now he has a week without Al. So he's shooting the sequence of the uh, shootout. And uh, Spielberg pops by because Spielberg is De Palma's best friend, you know? Yeah. His two best friends are Scorsese and, uh, and Spielberg. And Spielberg just pops in to say hi. He's on the Universal lot. He's on the back lot. And so now Al Pacino is like, they were shooting the hell out of this scene. They had Steven Spielberg come in and he directed us part of the scene. I'm like, no, he didn't. Right, uh, he this, is this is actually a meme, you know, that people have written articles. Did Steven Spielberg stealth direct part of the shootout of uh, Scarface? And I mean, if you know these guys work at all, you know, no, these guys right. don't subcontract their shots. And I talked to Brian about it. I said, so what's this all about? He's like, yeah. And Brian is very diplomatic. He says, that's not my recollection. He says, you know, uh, what happened is that uh, Stephen came to the set one day. You know, I had a bunch of things set up. And I said to him, go look at camera four. Sure. See, see if it comes off. Mm -hmm. And he, he looked at camera four and it came off. And that's it. So mm -hmm. that's how Spielberg directed a portion of the shootout. Scene. Right, right. So I don't want to give away too much, but the the book, you know, What's the, uh, you remember the producers where Roger Debris is like, I didn't know the Germans were losing the war. It's just, <laughs> it's just filled with little historical goodies like that. So what I'm telling you is that my book on Scarface is just filled with little historical goodies. 
One and, of my favorite. A lot of Pacino. Did you get? Did you, were you able to get a lot I of? I didn't. I didn't get. I didn't get Pacino. I got Pacino. Oh. I got the Pacino at the Y, which is almost as good. I'll tell you about Pacino. I had to go. You know, Stan Rosenfield is Pacino's publisher. Yeah, great guy. And uh, well, um, okay, so Stan, Stan is a Stan is a gatekeeper. Stan's uh -huh. got five clients. I think his other clients are Clooney, Danny DeVito, Nero, and right. who else? De Niro. De Niro, right? Pacino and one more person. So Stan is like playing footsie with me forever. And uh, you know, where do I know you from? Well, you you got me De Niro <laughs> for my Goodfellas book. And and you know, um, so I'm doing this whole thing with him. And in the meantime, there's a bunch of people I know, Michael Almereda, Dan Algrant, um, who have worked with with Pacino who say, well, let me talk to him. And I'm like, I appreciate the offer. You do this the I right may way. take you up on it. But right. the fact of the matter is, if, if I try and do an end run around Stan, he's, yeah, gonna, that, yeah. he's, he's yeah. going to make my life very uncomfortable. Yeah. And that won't be worth it. So I'm just going to stick with this and just keep pushing. Now, what happened in the meantime is that Pacino decided to write his own book. Uh, and I'm sitting there at the 92nd Street Y and Pacino saying, and now I'm writing a book. I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> my ghostwriter's in, so <laughs> ghost in the audience. I'm like, let me find him. I'll kill him. Uh, I'm thinking, well, maybe he'll still talk to me because I'll have questions. I want to ask him about the Brechtian aspect of the film or something, which mm -hmm. he wouldn't necessarily talk about in his book. But no, Stan's like, he's writing a book. We're done. I'm like, well, that's fine. I have this very funny portrait of him Re, re, you know, soaking in the applause at the 92nd Street Y, dressed all in black, slumped in his chair like Tony Montana, and saying things like, and they got all of a stone to write the screenplay. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, Michael Bregman, Marty Bregman's son, says, you know, I think Pacino doesn't, I think if Pacino could wipe Scarface off of his filmography, he would because it's too trashy for him. And I'm like, that might be true. But when he's talking about it in front of a packed house, it's a 92nd Street Y, he loves that movie because that yeah. and The Godfather are the two yeah. movies that people just go fucking wild about. You think they care about Bobby Deerfield? They do not. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's it. Godfather, Insider, uh -huh. Godfather, Dog Day, Scarface, not even Scent of a Woman anymore. Scent of yeah. a Woman was a lot. It was a. Godfather, Scar, you know, and and Heat, those are the ones. Central, mm -hmm. not even that anymore. But those are the ones, and he knows, he knows as he's sitting there that all he can do is say, and then with Bobby and Heat, you know. And he, <laughs> he, 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 that's crazy. You know, it's, it's weird, because, you know, De Niro has gotten more used to interviews over the years, and he's more comfortable with them. But the thing about De Niro is that, and I, I'm not telling tales out of school here, because I talk about it in the, in the Goodfellas book, De Niro doesn't remember anything. He, mm -hmm. he's, not, he's not sick. He doesn't have a problem. He's just never had a particularly good memory. And that's kind of the reason why he's never really done too much theater since he's gotten mm -hmm. famous. There's mm -hmm. a very famous bunch of, uh, there's a very famous uh, clip of a tribute to Don Rickles uh, where there's some backstage footage of Casino where Rickles is busting De Niro's shop saying, because they're, they're, he's got post-it notes all over the place. Says, Why don't you learn your lines? You're getting paid enough, you know? So mm, doesn't uh, remember, doesn't not only he doesn't process his life the way we process his life. Mm. I'm saying, well, that was a very crucial role for you. He says, yeah, well, I was having my hair done a certain way. Um, right. You know, 
<laughs> and I actually said to him, I said, I'm going to uh, Austin, Texas to look at your papers. Hopefully I'll find something. He says, yeah, I think you'll find something there. I said, yeah, I hope so. Because he was very <laughs> very kind. He was very pleasant. But there was a lot he doesn't remember. Because he doesn't think of these things in terms of iconic roles. He just works. He so, drives you crazy if you think like that, I think. Yeah. It's, it's like, when did I, you know, and he builds his roles from the outside in. He never builds, he doesn't talk about psychology. He He's mm -hmm. about the, the costume, the hair, the jewelry. When he has, you know, when he's gambling, uh, he wants real money. And the poor prop guy, Rob Griffin, had to go get $2,000 out of his own account and give it to him and count it after every take. Because if you remember properly, all those actors and Goodfellas were real wise guys who would just take the money as a lark if they put <laughs> their hands on it. And this poor, you know, prop guy who was, you know, at the beginning of his career, like, I don't know, so but de, so but de niro will will do interviews which you know was not the thing right. the thing about pacino is he's now got he does the q a as a form of performance and yeah. right. he'll go in front of audiences and it's 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 very gratifying to him and his so, yeah so glenn did you have your Al pacino voice uh perfected before you started doing uh, no i honestly i never worked on it i don't know where it comes uh, from. i think i think different. i think i think i think because i had such a hard time once the fact of the matter of my not doing a one-on-one -on -one interview with him came to be, it had caused me literally a year's worth of anxiety. And once it came, I came to the realization it wasn't going to happen, suddenly the anxiety just fell away. And I was like, well, I just have to make do. As for the voice, it's just sort of maybe a, a maybe it's a, a maybe it's a product of my of my resentful identification. But yeah, but I mean, once you see him, it's very easy to do because he literally. He really does that. He says, and then they got Brian De Palma. <laughs> really? Oprah he, he that. Yeah, it's yeah. like the Oprah yelling. I was just thinking yeah. that too. You get a car and you get a car. I am, during the pandemic, I staged a little film festival at home of all the, I grew, came of age during the 80s and there were all these like erotic thrillers, you know, in the 80s and early 90s. And so I was like, I want to rewatch all of these because I was thinking of doing a project about like, how did I learn about, what did I learn about sex and women and men as a teenager watching these things, you know? And so it was so much fun. I learned all kinds of terrible things about women and men is the answer. Um, but we went back and watched Sea of Love, which I hadn't seen since like it came out. And I had started thinking of Pacino as just that big kind of, you know. Yeah. That was 89, um, right? Yeah. I think so. Yeah, because no, well, that, that was his comeback. Because he did, he did Scarface, and then he did Revolution. Revolution. That's he right. That's bomb, right. And he walked away from films for several years. Yeah. Go ahead, Christy. But I'll I'll, I'll I'll elucidate some of that because it it ties into Pacino's very unusual relationship with Martin Bregman. But I want to hear what okay. you think about Sea of Love. He's just so good, you know. He's broad in it. Like it's a big performance. First of all, it's much, it's much better written than I remembered. Yeah. It was Richard Price. It's really, really well written. I mean, the outcome, like the plot, is just dumb as fuck. Yeah. But the, the dialogue is terrific. Ellen Barkin's amazing. But yeah. he was, I was like, you know, it's a really big performance. But he was wonderful, and it was, it was broad in a more nuanced way that I would have expected. Right. And I just enjoyed it so much. One thing I found out when doing this book, and you know, I, I followed Pacino's career for a long time, but he he could do broad before before that. He, you know, he was in The Indian Wants the Bronx, a theater piece by <laughs> Andrew Horowitz. And that character he plays in that is a very incredibly wired, energetic, malevolent, loud character. He's mm -hmm. pretty loud in the panic and needle park. 
it's only in the two Godfather yeah. movies that you see him in this kind of like quiet, reflective, all in the eyes kind of mode. Yeah. And then that kind of becomes a becomes a mode for him for a while. Again, Bobby Deerfield, things mm -hmm. like that. And then, but then you also see, you know, uh, Dog Day Afternoon. Um, yeah, he's he's quiet in Serpico, but he's pretty loud in Dog Day Afternoon. So he has both parts in him. But then yeah. he just started becoming that thing more, right. more, 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 more out of out of the box and more frequently. <laughs> and see love was an interesting picture because you know the thing about pacino had this relationship with the producer marty bregman for a long time bregman started in nightclubs and uh management and he managed faye dunaway and he saw pacino in the indian wants the bronx and he was electrified by him and he started this manager client relationship and at a certain point bregman got sick of being a manager because it involves so much hand-holding for actors but his relationship with Pacino was always very paternal and always very hand-holding. And the thing was, they would have breakups and then they'd get back together. And their relationship would run hot and cold, but then, you know, they'd do these amazing things together. They fell out um, over um, over a Born on the Fourth of July, uh, hmm. which was, which was at, you know, they couldn't get that off the ground. There was a lot of resentment on all sides. And, you know, uh, Oliver Stone was caught in the middle of it as the screenwriter. He had a weird relationship with Bregman. So they fell out and nobody was talking to each other. Stone wasn't talking to Bregman. Pacino wasn't talking to Bregman. Bregman wasn't talking to Stone. Everybody was talking to each other. And it was only when he saw Scarface, the 1932 Hawks film in Los Angeles, he picked up the phone and he called Bregman because he's like, I want to do a remake of this film and this is the guy who can make it. So they do that. That was a tough experience. It was a hard shoot. There were not bad feelings on all sides, but everybody was exhausted after it was done. Yeah. Pacino goes and makes Revolution, and it's a complete flop. And so he calls Bregman again, and they do Sea of Love, which is a smaller scale picture, but also mm -hmm. kind of like got Pacino's film career back on track by doing exactly, you know, on a smaller scale, but exactly the kind of movies where he had his best success as a film actor. New York, urban, crime, all that stuff. Yeah. I want to just uh, take a moment to just take credit, even though I've written about this, but, mm -hmm. but I was nervy and ballsy enough to climb over a fence at Universal in 80, <laughs> late 82, right. early 83, when they were finishing up. And I actually walked onto the set of the Tony Montana mansion, pretending <laughs> that I was just part of the, you know, and I went over to craft services and I got myself an apple and a cup of coffee. And there was Pacino walking around and also Michelle Pfeiffer. And I saw the huge painting of Tony and Elvira at the foot of the stairs. It was really something. I'll never forget that. And I was, I could have stayed there a, quite a while because nobody said a fucking word to me. It was right. really, you know, except to this day, there's a warrant for your arrest. <laughs> It's a, big, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big it's a big crew you could blend in you know you right. look like a professional you know one of the things that was really cool to me about scarface was the new york sequence which felt like when he comes up with the bomb and the whole yeah. united nations mm -hmm. thing and it felt like it didn't feel like a different movie but it did feel like uh a, an entirely different sequence in a florida-based film yeah like a cul-de-sac yeah him out of there and moves him up to uh, almost a, a Friedkin kind of film for a minute. But yeah. again, still really his movie. But uh, I, I just thought that was like a real, a, a very different moment in the film. And I wonder if uh, 
you know, if they had any difficulty shooting any of that stuff. Was that well, it was actually they 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 were they were glad to go to New York because they went to New York right after they got kicked out of Florida. When they first started, they got kicked out of Florida. They were there for about two weeks and several factions that didn't like the fact that they were making a movie about drug trafficking gave them a lot of death threats. And they were moved out of Florida and moved over. Lou Wasserman made the order. Come back to L.A. We're shooting it in L.A. We're shooting in Santa Barbara. So they were relieved to get out of L.A. They went to New York. There's a lot of green screen in that sequence, obviously, in the car thing, and it looks a little wonky by today's standards, but they were just really relieved to get out of Florida for a while. Now, they eventually went back. They they shot six months in, in Los Angeles, and they went back to Florida because they needed the pickup shots for the scene, uh, the chainsaw scene of the motel. Those were all uh, exterior no, shots. Didn't. That was done at the end? I didn't realize that. Yeah, that no. was done at the end of the shooting, and if you look at the chainsaw scene, there's a very rare lighting mismatch. When they park the car, it's cloudy, but when they uh, subsequent shots, it's a very sunny day. So uh, there is that. They, they, there's a slight lighting. Did it, did it get an NC-17 because of that chainsaw, or was there a threat? I'll of giving tell you what happened. This is not something. I'm was. This might be a. This movie got an R rating because of the testimony of a film critic. That's all I'm going to say right now. Oh. The whole chapter, it's very entertaining. It's very funny. Uh, but yeah, the 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 whole R rating was, uh, you know, at the time it was one, two, three strikes, you're out. De Palma shows it to the MPAA. There was no NC-17. They gave it an X. He cuts a bunch of shit out. He says they gave it an X. He does the thing he does, which is say, fuck it, puts the stuff back in and gives it that one last screening and has a very special testimonial that they actually gave it an R based on and read the book. Wow. Okay. We will. Wait, Here's the thing, watch. though. We're coming up on an hour and a half. Yeah. For yeah. 90 minutes. This is two That's, parts. I, I just want to say that I, I also, one last anecdote, which is that I went to the Chainsaw Motel in Miami Beach to because I had to have my moment with it, and it was being turned into a CVS. Well, you know, I was going to say, so I grew up in South Florida and Miami in the early 80s was like legitimately dangerous, like not just like, oh, white people are scared, like no bad things would happen to you. And the and I grew I was a Boca girl an hour north, you know, and but the change in it since then, like all the deco hotels, those were squats in the 80s. Like my husband used to go like do drugs in them, you know, as an art student. And now it's so glossy and there's all this money, but I had not heard that they had trouble shooting there. And it honestly, it doesn't surprise me that they would have death threats. I mean, it was, it was that kind of town. Look, Stone says the chainsaw stuff was based on real research. He wasn't exaggerating it. Obviously, Thomas yeah. shoots, it gets maximum horror and luridness out of it, but that sort of thing was par for the course. Mm -hmm. You also have to keep in mind one logical thing, which makes no sense, uh, they cut off the uh, cut through the arm of his brother, Angel. Angel, yeah. And and then he then he goes now the leg, huh? but of course he's not chained. What happened to him? You don't see him. There's no shots of him. Nothing. Do you, do you want mm -hmm. to see? Him? Do you really? I guess him? not. But still, <laughs> yeah. Anyway. It's all in the book. Don't yeah. drag it all out of all right, him now. Right, right. We gotta <laughs> wrap this up. What I'm gonna do? This is good. The process. We had a. I, I shut this recording off. I hand break it down for okay. web uh, quality, something or other. I send it to Jeff and he will post it when he posts it. But this is a good start. Yeah, I think I hope, to, I hope, I hope to be back. I also hope that Jeff 
uh, is able to, uh, you know, I actually did things. figure it out, but Jet uh, gave me a, a good lesson good. at his place, and we went over it four or five times, and I'm actually. Yeah. 60, 70 percent. Great to hear. I will be back. Maybe, maybe I won't yeah. be in charge of the tech. I hope, and I hope, I hope, I hope everybody comes back. I hope Sasha comes back. I hope you guys iron it out. But in the meantime, I think we got good stuff here. Thank you for participating, yeah. and thank you out there in HE's own land for watching. And we'll see you next time. All right. <laughs> bye bye. Okay. I'd like twelve hey plus. I didn't get in. Hey, by the way, you know, Pat Cooper was supposed to play. Uh, Don Rickles part and he read the script in, in Casino he read the script and said I don't get to talk at all and then the movie came out and he thought he made the biggest mistake of his career Don Rickles <laughs> his generation thank you